You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and this is my conversation with Sigurd Wungraven, a.k.a. Sata, from the band Satyricon. The reason for the discussion was to promote Satyricon's then-upcoming album called Deep Calleth Upon Deep, an excellent album. So let's hear what Sata has to say. Print article or what have you, because, mate, you have got a cracking album out. I'm really enjoying this one. I only got it late last night, but um, I've been a long-time fan of the band since about 1996 or so. Um, but I don't know what it is about this one here, but it feels a lot different. It feels very earthen. Is that something you'd agree with? To me, uh, to me, it's a really spiritual album on many levels on many levels it's uh it's an album that um uh, well the title fits really well to put it like that yeah yeah and yeah. i'm going to take it back a little bit because i mentioned i've been a long time fan of the band so i need to offer you a sincere congratulations on an outstanding career because as far as i'm concerned you're a rock and roll original certainly as far as black metal's concerned but i just call all metal and whether it's black or death metal these days i just call it all rock music but what comes to mind when you look back over the 20 past 25 years of recorded music history under the satirican moniker oh thank you um things are very different today when when i s- when we released our first album, I was um, 17 and I'm 41 today. Uh, when I when I did these first few records, um, I, I I'd say there was probably 50, 60 people in in Norway that were into this kind of music and. Um, I remember, you know, if there were shows, they would be at the weirdest places and there was hardly anyone there. You know, you're talking 20 guys or something like that. So black, black metal was very, very small. And um, it's not that it's gigantic today, but but it's not that small anymore either. <laughs> and uh, I think that, the world is a different place too. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of water under the bridge. I mean, it's just uh, this is all back in you know ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five around that time, and then uh, the world is such a different place now. And um, I. What is interesting is Satyricon is one of the few bands that hasn't, you know, we haven't quit. We, uh, you know, Mayhem for obvious reasons quit and then came back together again. Uh, Emperor quit and then they do these anniversary shows from time to time or whatever. But They're not releasing any music like what you're doing. No. Yeah. No, they're not a functioning band. Um, and then uh, Immortal took a break, and then they're back on. And now, I guess, yeah, they split into a couple of bands. And mm-hmm. <laughs> there's Abbas, the band, and there's another band called. So there's two Immortal, I guess. Yeah. So, 
Um, but Syracon has been consistently just going. Yeah. 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 How have you had the stamina to keep going through it all? Because you mentioned that when you first started playing out, certainly it was a similar scene back here, over here in Australia. I mean, we had a very, um, you know, sadistic execution, slaughter lord bands like that. They were, of course, mm. as well, only playing for 20 people in the suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Mm. And I guess mm. it was similar for you, but those bands by and large have stopped. What's given you the stamina to keep going through all of the trends and changes? Uh, first and foremost, we really love to do this. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story. I just uh, returned from a 10-day vacation, and I said... Uh, my wife kept teasing me because she said, I know you want to go home, right? And I said, no, no, it's fine. And she said, ah, you're full of shit. You want to go home. <laughs> and uh, I guess, you know, I was I was happy to be there with, uh, with her, her and my sons, but yeah, I wanted to go home. And I, I figured maybe a lot of the reason why I wanted to go home is that Although I work a lot and I'm exhausted and I need a break, um, a few days is enough. And then, if anything, if I'm going to have a break, then it has to be filled with something meaningful. For So to me, to just lie there, you know, by the pool at some hotel resort makes no sense because I feel like I'm surrounded by people who don't like what they do and they're just glad to get the fuck away from it all. And yeah, just couldn't agree more with that, mate. It's so yeah. true. Yeah, it's so true. And, and, and for me, it's like I, you know, I, I, I love music and I love to work with my band and, and to, you know, uh, indulge in everything that's related to the band, although some of it might be frustrating and, and, uh, and uh, you know, can be sometimes even make furious but but in general i i really like it and then and then i don't want to be away from it for a long time and i think the only time we've ever done something like that was after after uh, the age of nero i said all right this is enough we've been touring too much and in order for the next record to be what i want it to be and to make sure that you know this doesn't we don't run this ship on autopilot then we have to take an indefinite break but it wasn't a break as in terms of an official break it was a break more in the sense that we said all right uh, we're going to turn down offers for shows and we're gonna uh, tell the record company that you can't set any deadlines we just need to step away from this for a while so then um we did a year and a half without any writing um but that was in the best interest of the future of the band it wasn't because i was tired of doing this it was because i felt i needed time to step away a little bit um and uh, and i always felt you know as a as a musician i always felt that Criticism is uh, 
something that you're gonna just gonna have to learn to deal with. You can't. Uh, first of all, it shouldn't be a goal in itself that everyone, you know, is supposed to like what you do. Uh, what we, at least, what we do is is not for everyone, and it's not. That's not the intent either. Uh, but uh, what I find very problematic in criticism is when there are direct accusations or even insinuations about, you know, not feeling it or not being passionate. And I think to myself that that's probably, you know, that's the one thing you cannot possibly accuse Satyricon of is lacking passion. This is a band that um, would be doing this even if no one was watching or listening would still be making songs and, and playing and um, the way we look upon Satyricon it's much like a soccer team that that it's an institution that is bigger than the, the players who make the team and and we look upon, um, you know, a lot of the things that I say, even with, to my family, uh, you know, I, I say like, you know, I can't do that because there's, there's Satyricon. And then to my family can say, well, here's your family. And I tell them what, okay, well, that's true. And I love you guys. But what you have to understand is that, you know, before I met you and before you guys were born, Satyricon was there, you know, and if any of you ever were to leave and say, fuck you, Satyricon will still be there. And that's, it's that one thing in my life that I, uh, is really on top of the food chain. And I know Frost feels the same way. And that's, that's how it's, you know, that's the reason why we have done this for such a long time. And hopefully also the reason why we're, still capable of doing great things is because we truly love what we do. So you mentioned family there a few times, so it's remiss of me not to ask you about your health, and I hope you don't mind my inquiry here either, because like many yeah. fans, mate, I was concerned for your health and well-being in 2015 after it was announced that you were diagnosed with a brain tumour. So I'm a yeah. husband and I'm also a father as you are, so I felt a deep sense of empathy toward you and your situation and indeed to your family. How are things, on the, how are things on the health front though in 2017? Um, in general, I'm okay. Uh, I, I was lucky in the sense that I, um, I didn't have anything, uh, uh, so I had a, like a benign, uh, tumor and what they, uh, said to me is just the kind of thing that, um, we're going to have to watch and, when I when I ended in hospital, I ended up in hospital. No one really figured out bef uh, why I was there, and then obviously MRI scans uh, uh, revealed it. But in the beginning, uh, even the people who saw me wasn't sure that it was necessarily about that, since it was something benign. But then later, I I was transferred to uh, um, uh, the neurosurgeon in Norway with the most experience in these cases, and he said that it, it's no doubt that it relates to this. Your condition has is 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 very typical, um, and uh, and that's the thing about the brain is that it's you know 
you're it's not a disaster as long as you don't have a cancerous tumor or anything like that so in that sense um i wasn't hit very hard unlike so many other people who have much more grave conditions but uh i guess the 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 problem is that uh you're not supposed to have anything there that doesn't belong there uh, <laughs> So um, that type of thing, and then um, and then it was just a, a lot of it, both for me and my family, it was just about learning, trying to find out how, how we're gonna, you know, make this work. Um, and I couldn't really understand in the beginning how to to relate, and uh, sometimes you don't always understand, like you know, what's causing problems. So, you know, uh, you, you, if you feel bad one day, you ask yourself, you know, is it this or is it that, you know, kid kept me awake the whole night? <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, or am I just exhausted in general because this project that we're working on is so monumental, you know? So, so a lot of the time it's just trying to understand how am I going to deal with this? And, uh, um, what I've learned is I'm pretty much capable of doing everything that I've always done. But the most important thing is to, uh, adjust and listen. So, for example, um, you know, I had uh, uh, we had that recently. Uh, that was probably last last week. Uh, we're you know we're going for lunch and um, and um, it was supposed to be a, a big lunch with great wines and everything, and it was just. It's something that I really look forward to. And um, and then I just feel it when I get out of bed that this is just not going to be a good day. And then, and then in the beginning, I would have tried to pull it off regardless. But what I do now, I just say that I don't think doing a big lunch with wine and stuff like that is a great idea for me today. I think it's just not going to help at all. And uh, and just pull out and say, this is not going to work today. And so it's about being flexible, you know, understanding that you can even turn it around and, and say that, you know, if I feel bad one day and all of a sudden feel a lot better, uh, I, I should go to the gym even if I thought earlier in the day that there's no way I can go to the gym today because I'm not feeling good at all. But if I feel good three hours later, then it's important to just try and forget about the fact that I did feel bad earlier in the day and do it. So, so, so to be flexible and act upon what I feel like physically is, is, uh, is how I cope and, uh, and it works well for me. So you touched on a few things there I'd like to talk about, if that's okay again, mate. So I do follow you on Instagram, um, but long mm. before we had this thing, social media, so I'm talking about, you know, the early 2000s and the like, 
you always struck mm. me as a Renaissance man. Now, I don't know whether it was you know, the lyrics that you wrote or the way the phrasing in, comes across in the albums, the way you've written music, but, you know, wine, food, good health, you don't fit the mainstream's perception that your fierce stage presence projects, that's for sure. So can you tell me a bit about your wine production business and are there any other similar ventures that you're involved with outside of music? Uh, well, when it comes to... I'm just going to move into the next room. Uh, when it comes to that, I think the most important thing for me has been um, to try and have something that is important to me outside of music so that so that I don't, uh, what should I say, feel stuck because that's you can easily... Uh, I always thought there was something sad when when I saw you know met musicians at festivals that play in bands that um, are nothing but a you know bleak version of what they used to be, and I think to myself, I think to myself that okay, so these guys if they you know, did a festival in the early 80s, they were probably paid, you know, the equivalent of 50,000 euro to do this show and to die today they're going to get paid 5,000 euro. Uh, and, uh, and they can't even afford to have a, a crew with them and this is just not going to work out and it doesn't. Uh, and then I ask myself, why do they do it? And I think a lot of the time the answer is because they don't know anything else. They are willing to humiliate themselves because it's not as if they have any other choice. They can't just go and be... Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, they can't yeah, do anything else with their lives. Yeah. No. Uh, so what's important to me is... Um, you know, I thought it, it thought it was kind of funny that people make fun of Tenris in Dark Throne because it continued working in the Norwegian Postal Service. But it's important to understand that he always said that the reason why he did that is because he didn't want Dark Throne to be a job. You know, he never wanted to play live and he didn't want to rely financially on Dark Throne. He just wanted to feel free and and uh, he didn't want to be a um, a fighter in that way. And for me, uh, it's not the same. But I kind of like I I wouldn't have been happy doing what he does. But I I to some degree understand where he's coming from with that uh, argument. And and to me, I. Uh, I did uh, I did the Moonfog label for many many years, seventeen years, and Moonfog is actually back technically speaking because we're using the Moonfog label to license our albums to establish record labels for uh -huh. the future, but right. okay. but as yeah. So actually, Deep Calls Upon Deep, even it's Napalm Records, technically the owner of the master is Moonfog. So that's cool. But but uh, yeah, but the thing is that it's just not. Um, 
something that I wanted to continue with. So in 2010, I said to myself, all right, no more. Uh, what else could I do on the side that's fun? And um, that wasn't because it was financially necessary, but because it's necessary for me to feel that I can spend my energy and creativity on other things and and uh, have fun with other things and get to know other people and enjoy other types of work and also, um, uh, you know, learn how to be capable in different aspects of life. And wine became natural to me as I was a wine lover. And... Uh, um probably harder to understand from you know like a country from the perspective of Norwegians because we live in a country where it's too cold to it's have any to grow, wine. grow grapes isn't it there yeah yeah but uh but Australia I guess you guys would see it in a different way because wine is a natural part of your your lives yeah well, you're a very you're a very cultured bloke, and you're clearly educated. Because I do speak to a lot of people um, who aren't Australian, and they think that we all drink Fosters and all sorts of other shit like that. But you clearly know about our wine culture here, so that's thrilling. Which uh, which wines in particular, or is there is there a particular part of Australia from which the wine comes that you appreciate? Um. Well, Australia hasn't been as uh, terroir driven as many other countries some countries are uh, like certain parts of France it's, it really really comes down to um, the local meso and micro climate and the soil composition but uh, probably not so much in in uh, Australia, but I like um, I like I've had a tendency to like a lot of wines coming out of the Yarra Valley. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah, Victoria. Uh, yeah, and I um, also think that there are uh, there's some really interesting. I mean, more and more coming out of uh, Australia in the last few years has been more uh, organic wines. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. And um, and they come from from all over the country, really. But uh, there are many many interesting producers. One of them is Tommy Ruff. Uh, he makes some uh, makes some interesting wines. And there's, but so in general, uh, the 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 uh, organic and natural wine uh, revolution that's been in Australia for the last few years is probably the most interesting things to happen um, from that perspective. I think that you know, like the the, uh, the 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 flagships of Australia, uh, they needed to like so. There's there's a limit to like how long it's gonna have to rely on Penfolds Grange and Henschke and all that. There has to be something else, and I th I think that I think that the just the the whole wave of all these small producers making organic wines is is yeah, the, the best cottage, thing. That could, 
yeah, the cottage yeah. industry we've got here. The the wine that I really appreciate, I'm from Queensland, which is in the um, northeastern corner. Well, it's a big state, really. It's probably the same size as Scandinavia, to be honest with you, or maybe even bigger. But our um, the wine that we produce at the dry climate area, so on the granite belt, we call it out near Stanthorpe. If you can ever get a hold of, if you like sparkling Shiraz, I understand we, mm. in, we in Australia produce more of that anywhere else, but we just don't drink much of it. It all goes overseas, particularly to China, I think. But that's my mm. favourite. It's just bloody hard even to get from here, and it's produced just down the road here from me. So yeah. <laughs> if you can get some of that at a wine fair or something like that, see how it goes. Yeah. Cool. Hey, um, I haven't got much time left, to be honest, mate. I'd love to chat a lot more. Um, it's just one of those things with a lot of the interviews. You know how it is. They're sort of stacked up one after the other. But there is a question I've got for you. How on earth did you get the rights to use? And I mean, this is a compliment, and I can only take it. You can only take it as a compliment because this drawing from Edvard Munch. I take it that a lot of people try to license his drawings and his art, but you've been able to do that. Can you tell me the story behind the album artwork, and how did it come to grace a Satyricon album? So, um, in uh, after dark medieval times. Uh, we had um, we did well with the first record, so there was a little bit more money, and then we could finally get like an actual graphic designer to <laughs> help us uh, work on on the cover cover art, and uh, and uh, his name is Hal Bodine, and he later ventured off into some moving away from doing you know, uh, album covers and books and things like that to um, doing mostly art-related stuff and producing art himself. Uh, and I reached out to him, you know, ha not having talked to him in, in ages, I reached out to him because I thought due to the strong spirituality, the 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 substantial depth of this record, the, the really strong artistic presence that like he's the type of graphic designer that is right for this record. So I emailed him saying, email him saying, okay, so uh, I know you're not really doing album covers anymore and things like that, but uh, you know, let me tell you about this record and see what you feel about it. And then he just wrote me back and he said, so I guess this is a offer in the category, an offer I can't refuse. Uh, and I would very much like to, to be a part of this. And I said, great. And then when we had our first conversation, uh, he was asking me about the front cover and I kept talking about the music and the lyrics and, and how this all feels. And he said, uh, well, I've been just working on this big catalog job for a couple of books books with the, the Monk Museum. And he said, you're probably not aware of this, but in his will, uh, Edward Monk, he donated everything that he ever made to the city of Oslo, including stuff that wasn't even never, you know, shown know to the That's public. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, he said, it's just like in that vault, there's all this amazing stuff that the world has never seen. And he said, given that I've just, you know, worked on these two really big projects with the museum, I'm sure that, uh, 
you know, you could at least see if there's something there that you, you know, feel is right for this and we'll take it from there. And, and I said, well, how's that even possible? And he said, well, let's just ask, you know, and, uh, and, uh, so eventually we started just looking through stuff and there's all this amazing Edward Monk stuff that I had, of course, never seen. And I was just, you know, really, really, um, fascinated by the whole thing. And then, and then I said, all right, so these are just like 9,000 of them. How about, you know, you run through this and, try and show me, you know, uh, 50 or a hundred really interesting things that you, you know, that would work. Uh, and, and then we'll go from there. And, uh, he did. And I started looking through things and I, I said, all right, well, that, that's really cool. I like that. Hmm. Not such a fan of that one. Uh, this is good, but doesn't really work you know, for an album cover, we would have to crop it too much, things like that. And as I kept going through them and then, and then I saw this and I, I said, Oh wow, that's it. You know, that's, it certainly fits. Yeah. Yeah. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, that's crazy because that looks like it was commissioned. Like that looked like satiric. I'm <laughs> going to Edward Munch saying, can you, you know, make an album cover for this music? Because it, it's just made total sense. And I said to the designer that I don't know how to explain it, but the only thing I can say is I'm very strongly drawn to this illustration. And um, I can't think of anything else like being the cover. It's such an obvious choice. And I... I said to him that I feel it's very important to stay true to my ideals in art because I have quite a lot of art myself in my house. And Yeah, I saw uh, that picture behind you before. That looked nice. Yeah, and as you see, this is very, very different. Uh, and that's what an artist friend of mine pointed out. He said that, he said, what I like about your house is that it doesn't look like it's strictly curated. It, it's not are chosen to fit a certain style it's just lots lots of different style i have uh you know i have symbolicism i have contemporary i have urban art i have uh photography i have lots of different things and because my policy in art is like i'm not into a certain style or i'm not trying to make my house look a certain way the way i think about it is that if i'm drawn to it then then it's great art then you know i connect with it so that was that was the thing with um kiss of death by edward munch is when i when i saw that i thought oh wow that's so raw naked uh and powerful and this is really what this album is about and then it was the obvious choice and it was just very happy that the monk museum has been so extremely helpful in the process and it makes us feel proud that that somehow 
there is some sort of small connection with uh, what was not only the greatest Norwegian artist of all time, but just one of the greatest artists. Full stop uh, anywhere, in, from anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. I think it's I think it's a wonderful collaboration because it's it's a collaboration between two Norwegian icons, you know that, and it's almost like as if he reached out from wherever dimension he might be inhabiting right now and actually helped you create part of your art. <laughs> I, I I like I like to I said to Frost when we were doing a festival in Germany the other day I said that um, uh, it was interesting hearing from our webmaster how how the monk illustration um caused like a stir of really strong emotions with people absolutely loving it and people absolutely hating it and then i thought thought to myself that's interesting because it's from 1898 and 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 when uh back in the days monk was controversial and it's interesting like when you know as a norwegian black metal band uh, you know, hundred and fifteen, twenty years later, mm. you know, doing the same we, thing. <laughs> yeah, doing the same thing, and then and people and and it stirs all these emotions in people, and uh, and that's the interesting thing, uh, you know, about art too, is that what a a lot of the time what people don't understand when they see something like this is that. Uh, um, you know, I had my brother-in-law, he even said, he said, I love it, but it looks, it looks like a sketch. And, and I said, well, that's, that's why it's great. That's what I it's liked so, about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. so raw. And if this looked more sort of complete and polished, it wouldn't be the same. No, agreed. And, yeah. and that's, you know, sometimes in in contemporary art, uh, you know, people will just put some just a a red line across a white piece of paper, frame it, and then and then say, "Oh, this is art." And then people see it at a gallery, and they're like, and get pissed off, and they think to themselves, "How the fuck is this art? This is just pissing me off. This is bullshit." And it can't be art. But then I always thought to myself, well, what if that is the purpose of the artist to piss you off? Elicit <laughs> <laughs> a response. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What what if he what if he's trying to make you angry? That's his project and he's doing this bullshit knowing that it's bullshit because he wants to piss you off. Have you ever thought about that? You know. <laughs> Hey, I, uh, mate, I'm really sorry. I better wrap things up. I've got to race to my next interview, but believe me, I could talk to you for at least another hour, such as the ream of questions that I've got to ask you. And I realise I apologise. I haven't asked you a question about your wonderful new album, except for the statement that I made at the beginning of our interview, but I did mean it. And I'm just going to read out a little bit of what I've said, I've written, because I've got to review the album, of course. And um, uh, what have I said here? It's going to be an extraordinarily hard album to best for the blackish metal release of the year. I feel confident saying that, even though I've only been listening to it at least half a dozen times. So I want to offer you a congratulations, not just on the album again, but a wonderful career. I'd love to see you down here in Australia. And you know what? I'd love to catch up. And I've just had a thought. I want to share a bottle of um, sparkling Shiraz with you as well when you come down. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank no you worries, so mate. No worries. Okay. All the best. Nice to see you. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Catch you. 
My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. That was my conversation with Sigurd Ungraven, a.k.a. Sata, from the band Satyricon. Really hope you enjoyed that, and thank you so much for listening.